Welcome back to Muppets in Space, a Farscape rewatch podcast on the incomparable. Tonight we're covering season one, episode five, back and back and back to the future, and episode six, thank God it's Friday again. I'm your host tonight, Eric Scott, and joining me once again is my fellow co-host, that hard worker who never needs a rest day, Jason Johnson. It's all good. Tomorrow's a rest day, so it'll be fine. That's right. Tomorrow's always a rest day. That's what we learned. That's right. As far as you know. If it'll just get here. Right. And uh, just as an ever-present reminder, until we don't have to remind you, we're following the Wikipedia episode order for season one instead of the Amazon Prime order, as Amazon once again goes by the air date of the show, not the production date that they actually shot the episodes in. All right, so let's get into it. Episode five, back and back and back to the future. The crew of Moya is witnessing a ship slowly disintegrating. Rigel demands that they leave, and Argo actually agrees with them. As Zan wonders if anything can be done to help, they receive a transmission from the shuttle escaping the ship. Moya's view screen shows a female alien, similar to, similar to Dargo in appearance, and Dargo changes his mind suddenly, telling a pilot to bring the shuttle on board. Dargo and John meet the shuttle in the docking bay and rescue a female and male alien from the shuttle. When John goes back in to see if there are any others on board, he gets some kind of shock from an open panel which seems to disorient him. Later, the aliens explain that their phase couplers overloaded, causing their eventual destruction of their ship. They were on their way to rendezvous with another ship to deliver some scientific information about deep space gravitational fluctuations. Sounds exciting. Uh, the female alien, who we learn is named Matala, or Matala, leaves with Dargo to enter their rendezvous coordinates. Crichton has some kind of strange vision of him and Matala getting physical, which shocks him, and he kind of goes away to rest and recovers wits. Rigel, true to form, wants to talk about their fee for rescuing them and transporting them to where they want to go, but Dargo wants none of that and shuts it down as the aliens are Elonics, genetic cousins and blood allies to the Luxons. Varel, the male Elonic, tells Dargo that they are at war with the Scorpions. Their Luxon allies have helped with arms and aid in the war, and if they can get to the rendezvous point, it will help the war effort more than he will know. Meanwhile, in the shuttle, Aaron's poking around when Metella comes in. Mattel doesn't like Aaron being there, and when she goes to grab Aaron, Aaron pulls away, and they both suddenly adopt defensive postures, ready to fight. But Dargo arrives, and he sides with Metella and orders Aaron to leave. A little later, Aaron is telling Zayn and Crichton that it's a little fishy that two people were alone in deep space doing research, quote-unquote. Uh, suddenly, John gets another erotic vision involving Metella, which makes him flinch and groan. Aaron thinks Metella is affecting Dargo and John somehow. And then John has yet another erotic vision, and he apologizes to Zan and Aaron and excuses himself, saying he needs air. When Aaron asks Zan, we have Aaron here, what's the matter with him? Zan simply answers, he is Crichton. Uh, Varel is in a maintenance bay, studying his data. When Dargo arrives, they discuss Metalla briefly, and Varel notes Dargo's attraction to Metalla, saying that Metalla is attracted to Dargo also. Crichton arrives and asks Dargo if he can have a word with him. He asks Dargo if Atlantic women have some kind of special power for attracting males, like pheromones or something, and confesses his erotic flashes he's been having. Dargo gets kind of mad and orders John to remove Metalla from his thoughts. Later, John has yet another vision. This time, it's Aaron asking where Dargo is, and is he still acting like Varel and Metalla's personal servant? When John doesn't answer, she waves a hand in front of his face with a flash, uh, and with a flash, John is back where he was, confused. Then Aaron walks up and asks John where Dargo is, and is he still acting like Varel and Metalla's personal servant? Hmm, that sounds familiar. When John doesn't answer, Aaron asks if he heard her. Twice, John says. Aaron says he is odd, and leaves John thinking he is seeing the future. Back in his quarters, John has another vision. 
He's looking at a dead Varel in the maintenance bay as Dargo enters. Metalla appears and kills them both, and suddenly John is back in his quarters. Meanwhile, Aaron and Metalla are sparring with each other. Uh, after Aaron has knocked Metalla down a couple of times, Metalla ends things with some unusual strike that knocks Aaron unconscious. Metalla thanks Aaron, bows, and leaves. She runs into Zan, who asks Metalla about why her ship destabilized. Metalla doesn't say and deflects the conversation towards Crichton, but Zan says Crichton is too complex to explain in the short amount of time that Metalla will be on board. John gets another vision of the maintenance bay again. Dargo enters like before, but this time John blocks Metalla's deadly strike. Uh, she knees him in the groin, and John flashes back to the present. Zan asks John what the matter is, and he says this is going to take a lot of explaining. Meanwhile, Varel confides in Dargo that he and Metalla were testing a new weapon, and it caused the accident on their ship. Dargo is persuaded to keep it a secret from the others. Uh, back in Zan's quarters, she's listening to John's theory about what's happening, and suggests that he try to change the outcome. Frustrated, John drops a glass-like mask he was holding, and it breaks. He apologizes to Zan, but she takes no offense. Later, he goes to confront Varel, but finds Metalla instead. As Dargo arrives, Metalla falls to the ground and lies to Dargo that Crichton threatened to tell the others about the weapon if she didn't pleasure him. Dargo gets angry and draws his Qualta blade and stabs John through the chest. Metalla then kills Varel and Dargo. Crichton is suddenly back in Zan's quarters, the glass mask in one piece in his hand. John says he tried to alter the future, but made things even worse. John accidentally drops the mask again and explains what happened. Uh, Aaron arrives and says that Metalla fights like a scorpion. She must have been surgically altered to look Elonic, but Crichton already knows she's a scorpion. Uh, Aaron asks how John knows that, and he explains about seeing the future and being certain that Dargo knows what Varel is hiding. Aaron wants to question Dargo, but John says no, that Dargo thinks too highly of Varel. Zan says to separate them, but Pilot interrupts with news that Moya's phase imbalance is worsening. Zan calms Dargo, asking him to meet her in command. John bets he won't be alone, and guesses Varel will stay behind to guard his research. Uh, John heads to the maintenance bay, then he hears Dargo and Metalla in the hallway and hides. Metalla is trying to seduce Dargo into joining the Atlantic War. Dargo says his crime will prevent him from joining, although no one knows his true crime that he was in prison for. John sees Varel, demanding to know what his research is, and exposing Metalla as a Scorvian spy. He tells Varel that since getting zapped on the shuttle, he has been experiencing time flashes into the future. Varel scans John and says it's temporal dislocation. Varel finally admits that Crichton must have been exposed to a quantum singularity. Uh, just then, Metalla enters with Dargo. When Varel tells her Crichton thinks she's a Scorvian spy, she strikes Dargo dead, takes his cultivate, and tries to shoot John. John dies for cover, and she shoots Varel, grabs his research, and heads for the shuttle. Aaron arrives and shoots the shuttle, and the shuttle implodes, taking Moya and everyone on board with it. John's suddenly back in Zan's quarters, listening to Zan suggest he try to alter the future. Aaron comes in, but Crichton tells her about Metalla being a Scorpion spy. Zan says Crichton's experiencing the future. The future? asks Aaron. You can barely function in the present. As the other suggest things to try, John gets more and more frustrated, saying he's tried all those things and they never work. And then he says that Dargo's the key. They have to separate him from Metalla and try something new that they haven't tried already. Zan approaches Dargo in the maintenance bay and asks him to speak to Rigel, who wants to charge the Alonix for the rescue. Dargo gets mad and goes with Zan to command, but only John and Aaron are there. Dargo doesn't believe Crichton's premonitions, and they argue, so Crichton asks the others to leave them alone. He tells Dargo about the future conversation with Metalla, where Dargo told Metalla that his real crime will prevent him from joining her. Metalla is the real enemy. Dargo is shocked, and then Zan and Aaron return. Uh, they note that there's a vessel approaching. It's the Atlantic cruiser that Aaron thinks might be a disguised Scorpion ship. John wants a starburst away, but it will take too long. They can't outrun the ship, so Aaron will pilot Moya to avoid a weapons lock. Dargo says that Scorpions look nothing like Atlantix, so if they refuse to make visual contact, then you will have your answer. He goes off to confront Metalla with John, just as an audio signal is received from the other vessel. 
apologizing for a, quote, communications problem, unquote. Aaron takes control of Moya and starts evasive maneuvers. Back down in the maintenance bay, Dargo and Crichton confront Metalla. She pulls a knife and threatens Varel's life if Dargo doesn't drop his weapon. Dargo obeys, but kicks the cultive blade out of Metalla's reach. Metalla stabs Varel, and as John dies for Dargo's weapon, Metalla attacks him, kicks Dargo in the chest, and makes a dash for the shuttle. Dargo grabs his cultive blade and charges after Metalla, but John holds him back, saying Dargo has to trust him. Varel manages to collapse the shuttle's containment field by remote control before he dies, and the shuttle begins destabilizing. Moya starbursts away just before Metalla and the disguised scoring vessel implode. Later, as Crichton gets something to eat, Dargo enters. Crichton starts a conversation, but Dargo thinks that John is mocking him. John says he mocks them all. He tries to ask Dargo about his true crime, but Dargo refuses to discuss it. Dargo leaves, but stops at the door and quietly tells John that females don't usually distract him in a crisis, but it's been so long. John understands. Man, he says, does he understand. All right, uh, a couple of little bits of trivia about this episode. Uh, the title, obviously, is derived from the film Back to the Future, but it was also intended to emphasize the number of premonitions that John has in the story. Brian Henson, one of the show producers, noted that with this episode, Farscape started to explore darker themes. Even the love scenes here are a little creepy. We are feeling our way into a visceral and twisted tone that would become signature territory for the series, making this episode one of the most important of season one. And along that same line, uh, Ben Browder also considered this to be one of his favorite early episodes of the season. All right, quickly, I know last uh, podcast, we were kind of guessing at what these episodes might be, since they kind of sounded like the same title-wise, like what they might be about. Apparently, we weren't sure if they were going to be like time travel, maybe, or like flashbacks. And apparently, at least we scored with this one, because this one was both. Uh, it was uh, time travel, but experienced by Crichton via flashbacks, or I guess really flash-forwards, right? Yeah, and, and I will say that one of the things I really liked about this episode was the fact that the, the flash-forwards got progressively longer. Um, so you kind of got more of a feel for the world as you went. It was almost like he was, he was edging towards the future where it was actually going to be the real future, you know? So I thought that was a nice way of kind of telegraphing how it was going. Um, and, and I will also, uh, mention that we noticed the, uh, darker, uh, creepy scenes. Um, I was watching this with my wife and she actually even commented the, uh, first couple times that John had the, uh, flashbacks of Matala, it was just kind of, kind of, she kind of looked at me, she's like, what was that about? You know, it was kind of one of those, it, it definitely felt like they were moving in a different direction. So that's going to be interesting to see how they progress with that. Yeah. Cause you weren't really sure, at least for those first couple that he was experiencing the future. It was more like, okay, is he having like some kind of dream or like, like he was saying, does she have some kind of effect on men, like some kind of pheromones or something that would make him like daydream or want or like, you know, I guess want her or want to go after her. Yeah. And if, if, if it hadn't been for the, the title, that's exactly where my mind would have gone, right? You, you would have assumed that it was affecting in real time if you hadn't already known the title had some kind of time jump involved. Right, and, and this kind of reminds me of, you know, this has been, this has been done a lot in other uh, sci-fi series where they kind of do the same things over and over again, like they're caught in a time loop. The one I thought of immediately because I just saw it the other day on TV was that one Star Trek TNG episode, Cause and Effect, uh, where they're all stuck in a time loop. So like the, every... Um, act of the show, they're doing the same stuff over and over again, but they kind of do a little bit, little bit different because they realize they're kind of stuck. They try something different, doesn't work. Try it again, get a little further, doesn't work. Yeah, I kind of like how they, you know, they, like you said, got progressively longer. They're trying different things. It, keep, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> you know, so it's not getting any better. Or otherwise, I guess the show would be over, right? If it got better immediately. But so what you're saying is, at the end of the episode, in the end of the season, Kelsey Grammer is going to turn out to be the big bad. That's right. They're going to run across a some strange ship from the past and then yeah or it's you know by, it's it's just uh, him in a big blue furry suit you know or it could be crewed by john's father that's how we get him back in the show right 
I guess the other kind of thing that goes on with these kind of episodes is I like how, you know, at first the person experiencing these time loops or jumps or whatever thinks that they're kind of going crazy, but then eventually figures out that they're not crazy. This is actually happening, but they can't really convince people that what's happening is going on, but they keep trying. And usually the best way to try it is either say what they, what the person they're talking to is saying as they say it, or just before they start saying it. Yeah, I mean that's that's obviously the the trope. Otherwise, you're just crazy, right? I mean, you have to you have to do something to prove that that you know what's fixing to happen. Either either catching something that you shouldn't have known was going to be there, or saying the words. Right, because like one like of the first flashbacks, Aaron comes in and says, "Metal's a scorpion spy." He's like, "Yeah, I know. How do you know that?" You know. And the second time through the loop, she doesn't even get to say it. He's like, "He's like, yeah, Metal's a scorpion spy." What? How do you know that? Yeah. And, and he does pilot, the same thing to Pilot, then, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, Pilot calls him and it's like, yeah, we know Pilot. The phase balance is getting worse. And they're all looking at him like, what? How? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, I guess while we're still in that same kind of scene, I guess the last time, or I guess I guess the last time we know about anyway, when John's flashing forward when he's with Zan in her quarters, he that little mask that he has, the glass mask, is Zan's, right? He's been playing with it or holding onto it for whatever reason. And instead of dropping it by accident, he purposefully puts it down and like stomps on it uh, it just seemed i don't know i kind of out of character to me like he was being like was he being spiteful or mean or was he just frustrated and i don't know if you're trying something different i'll just be way out of character and just stomp on this thing and you know, i don't know yeah i think that was a i think that was supposed to be a way of showing us that he's intentional this time loop right so every other time he did it it was an accident and he was just kind of stumbling his way through and this was you know if it's going to happen i'm going to intentionally have it happen so that i can control the events but yeah i agree it, it felt very mean-spirited and you kind of wanted him to just set it down and show that he broke the time loop that way yeah i guess he could have put it down nicely and that's still on his own terms yeah i mean whatever i guess it's you know, shocking episode so i mean let's just shock people with this too right yeah uh, it just kind of makes you feel bad for zan because obviously she cared about the mask she had it on display and now it's chattered yeah like either she bought it somewhere on their travels or for some reason they let her have that in her you know, prison quarters, you know, because this is still the same ship they were imprisoned on, right? So they had some gear and belongings with them, right? Yeah, like you say, it's, it's probably a souvenir of some kind, either from before or recent. We just may have missed it. So. Right. And I guess this episode, and I guess kind of next episode that we'll talk about, I guess Rigel gets kind of sidelined. You know, he has a couple of scenes where he's basically telling everybody he wants to charge them, Tal and Varel, for the trip, and then just goes off to the galley and stuffs his face with like space french fries or whatever they look like yeah again i think it, it, i don't know if it's cost of the um you know animatronic slash muppets or what but you know him him pilot both get kind of short shrift in these next these two episodes because it, it focuses mostly on the characters that have more mobility and and motion so. yeah and if they're trying something different where it was a lot of combat scenes and love you know people coming in and out of rooms i guess you really can't cut down to like you know half a screen where you can only see you know someone from like the waist down a waist up yeah technology limitations of the day uh, speaking of which uh the the sparring match with aaron and metalla i guess had its good and bad points i mean it, it was kind of cheesy i guess in the fact that there weren't any kind of stunt doubles i didn't didn't seem like it was saying that they were the actual actors doing that so it wasn't exactly as or at least nowadays i guess they have more of like a fight coordinator fight fight choreography this was kind of like just a quick little you know fun throw in to you know reveal that Metalla has you know some kind of special space martial arts uh, that can paralyze people or kill apparently as in other cases and evidently they're identifiable right because that was the clue that 
uh, Aaron needed to identify her as a scorpion. There's evidently some identification and, and correlation between the races and their or species and their different martial arts and fighting styles. I'll also mention that I found it very interesting that the logo, and I may be just slow and missed it in previous episodes, but the logo on the mat, uh, I think it's the Peacekeeper logo, because you see it again uh, kind of in the next episode on, on crates and, and identifying goods and, and locations that I, I guess I've just either missed or this was the first time it really jumped out at me. So I thought that was kind of interesting as well. The, the, the mat was embracing with the logo. Yeah, I, I caught that too. It was kind of funny. Uh, I, I, I don't know if it was in the first episode on Crace's ship or not, or I just didn't notice. But yeah, I saw the same thing. I was like, oh, that's interesting. They have a logo on the floor and a sparring chamber. Okay, whatever. And the next episode, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. That's the same logo. Yeah. <laughs> They're peacekeepers, which we'll get to in a minute on the next episode. But yeah. Or they just came up with it during the, they just developed that logo at this point during the season and wanted to make sure we saw it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, someone spent a lot of work in the graphics department, and they wanted to really, you know, show off their their work. I, I will give them some props, though. the 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 martial arts scene, the sparring scene, they were doing not your typical like Earth martial arts. They're at least making it a little different to make you think, okay, this is definitely you know other planets, other worlds. They have their own style of fighting because they both had the same pose. But like when Aaron got grabbed in the shuttle, they both reared back with the same act, and they're both like, ooh, you know, you're trained or you're partially trained, you know, and you know, then later they got to prove it you know, with a little more detail. And, you know, your first instincts to say, well, you know, how practical is that as far as a martial art goes? You know, that seemed kind of hard to pull off and impractical techniques. But, you know, I guess if you're assuming that's, that kind of makes the assumption that everybody has the same physiology and, and stuff that we're used to. So maybe in, in their galaxy, that's, that's much more effective than traditional Earth-based martial arts. Yeah, I just kind of thought back to like, was it Star Trek Six where Kirk was in the prison Rorapente and he had to fight this one big giant alien and he like kicked the alien in the groin and basically got his butt kicked and then the one other alien's like yeah i think what you're trying to go for that's not where that is on him you know right <laughs> so, everything's not human kind of that's right you know you might look the same but are you really no uh but i guess probably the one of the bigger things we learn out of this episode is a little bit more about dargo I guess we learned basically that the, the crime that he told the crew about that he was in prison for wasn't really his true crime. And his true crime is you know, much worse, whatever that might be, which I'm guessing if that's, if he, if he tried to hide it like that, maybe he's thinking that that would be like the, the worst possible thing he could tell them that they wouldn't want him on board anymore if they, they, learned, they learned what he really did. Yeah, on a, on a ship full of criminals. And I think his original, the crime he told them was killing a superior officer or something. So uh, evidently it's supposedly worse than that. So it'll be interesting to see how they, they dole that out. But, you know, I think we've, we've said that with the exception of probably Rigel, all the criminals, I'm putting that in quotes, so you just can't see air quotes there. You know, we really don't know a lot about them. We don't know a lot about Zan, uh, other than she's a priestess and was an anarchist. And, you know, we thought we knew about Dargo, but it sounds like maybe there's more to that. So it, it's interesting that they're slowly doling that out or, you know, shifting what we actually thought we knew because we really don't know for sure. So they can do whatever they want with the storylines and move everything around. Yeah, and it's good for writers for future episodes that they'll have something to, to pull from. Because I'm assuming that since they mentioned this here, it's not like other sci-fi shows or other shows where they won't ever mention this ever again, right? You know, they're they're going to not leave us hanging there. They're going to have some episode later that reveals what the real reason was, and then Darko's got to tell everybody where they find out, and you know they'll have to be like, no, it's okay. You know, we still like you. We still, you know, you're still part of the crew. You know, not like you know, get out. You know, that's it. You know. <laughs> unforgivable goodbye yeah yeah 
Exactly. And, and speaking of doling out, uh, I could be wrong because it's been a long time since I remember this show running on TV. And again, I didn't see it in its first run. But I think this is the first mention we have of the scorpion race or species. And um, if I remember from advertisements and stuff, that, that race may come back and show up later in the, the show at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, like I, I haven't seen much of the first season, I think. Uh, but yeah, there is a character later. I'm not sure when he comes in. His name is Scorpius, and I don't know if he's a Scorvian or oh. I, I, don't, I don't remember what race he is, but it could be. Or I'm just completely juxtaposing Scorpius and Scorpion. So okay, well, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's the fun of reliving these things is. Even if I did remember, it's been 20 years, so I probably forgot anyway. So it's at least the details anyway. Right. All right. Anything else about back and back and back to the future? No, I think we've I think we've gone back and covered a good bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they're saying is like the title was like the different kind of premonitions. I didn't really count them, and I'm not going to go back now and recount them again. But I'll take their word for it that there's like three major premonitions, I guess. Yeah, I guess you could say the major ones, obviously the the mini ones that he has at the beginning where it's just flashes, they're not counting that, but uh, it, it sounds good. I'll go with it. Yeah, that, him meeting with Varel in the bay, trying to cover, you know, uncover what's going on, getting killed a couple of times, and I guess the final one where they solve it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they could go Groundhog Day and say that he lived, you know, a thousand of them, and we just only saw a few, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this could have gone, you know, in his mind for, you know, weeks, which, you know, in, in his time, but in real time, it was like, you know, a day or three or whatever. Right, you want to tackle, uh, move on to Thank God It's Friday again? Sure. All right. So the episode opens with Dargo in a fit of Lux and hyper rage. Directing his anger at the nearest male, Dargo goes after Crichton, but John has hid himself safely out of Dargo's sight. A few days later, John comes, John finally comes out of hiding and is briefed by Zan, Aaron, and Rigel about what he's missed. Dargo has been gone for three days, but the crew could not find John to tell him. They mentioned that Dargo had taken Aaron's prowler to the surface of a nearby planet. The rest of the crew take a transport pod to find Dargo. They look for Dargo in a club-like venue, and although the locals look salvation, Aaron says that they are common laborers and a distant cousin species. As John waits at the bar, he spots Dargo and immediately approaches. John tries to get away, but Dargo catches John and ends up hugging him instead. Dargo's behavior is odd, his hyper-rage is gone, and instead, he's cheerful, relaxed, and content. He informs the crew that he has been a laborer during his time on the planet, and is very content and filled with a new purpose. Before John and the others can figure out what that purpose is, Dargo wanders off with a beautiful local woman. A woman dressed in white then approaches the crew. She introduces herself as Volmei, the leader of the people on the planet Sakar. She encourages the crew to stay as long as they want. A voice over the loudspeaker then announces the day is over and it's time to rest. Everyone obeys and begins to head home. Rigel, who's been eating all day, wanders off to relieve himself. Dargo leaves with his girlfriend from the bar and tells the others that he will show them around tomorrow because it's a rest day. John is discreetly told by a strange woman that he must stay on the planet, but before John can ask any questions, she abruptly leaves. Aaron wants to, to leave Dargo behind, but John thinks something is clouding Dargo's thinking. Their argument is interrupted by explosions and Rigel's cry for help. The crew runs and finds Rigel cursing unseen assassins. As he was relieving himself, something exploded very close to the royal Hyenarian, close enough to scorch several royal parts. Aaron, unconvinced that there was an assassination attempt, returns to Moya with Rigel. Zan and John stay on the planet and go to Dargo's apartment. They are invited to stay the night. 
but they're left to share a mattress on the living room floor as Dargo heads back to the bedroom where his girlfriend is waiting. Back on Moya, several explosions bring Aaron running to Rigel's quarters. Aaron finds Rigel whimpering with flames and small explosions coming from his body. Aaron calls John and tells him that the assassination attempt was caused by Rigel's own bodily fluids becoming explosive. John tells Aaron to run some tests on Rigel, but she doesn't want to, claiming she's no scientist. John insists and tells Aaron to ask Pilot for help with the tests. The next day, Dargo heads out to the fields to begin to work with the Sicarians, but John remembers Dargo claimed that it would be a rest day. In the field, John spots the woman who stopped him another night and follows her. He asks her to talk, but is grabbed from behind before he can get any answers. As he is restrained, an old man produces a worm, which burrows into John's stomach through his belly button. The old man tells John not to mention the worm and that he must eat and the pain will go away. The people quickly leave before they are discovered and John passes out. Zahn and Dargo return from the fields to find John sick in the apartment. He has spent the whole day eating and throwing up. After spending a whole day in the field with Zargo, however, Zan has found supreme contentment working in the fields. Zan and Dargo bring John to another workday after work celebration. John is met by Hyben and his daughter Tanga. They explain to him that the worm is protecting John from the mind control by filtering out the toxins that's found in the tannet root that everybody's eating. It's the root that causes a strange, blissful behavior and extreme, make them extremely accessible to commands. Some of the locals, like Hyben and Tanga, have a natural immunity to the root's effects, but their numbers are few. They gave the worm to John so that they could get his help. They leave John with a piece of advice. He must act like everyone else. If his immunity to the root is discovered, he will be executed. Back on Moya, Aaron and Pilot are working to cure Rigel. Rigel has been frozen in cryostasis, and Aaron is running tests, but is quickly becoming frustrated. Pilot tells Aaron that he too has troubles with complex science, but he studies constantly to improve his knowledge. With that encouragement, Aaron eventually finds the cause and the cure, much to her surprise. The tannet root Rigel ate reacted with his body chemistry to make his fluids explosive. Once the compounds of the root are removed from his system, he returns to normal. Back on the planet, John learns from Tanga that the tannet root has been brought to Sykar by another race. They forced the native population to grow and harvest it. Volme was chosen to be the ruler and was given the worm. She obeys the orders of the others. The root is destroying the native culture and turning their once lush planet into a wasteland. Hyben and Tanga hope John can bring help and weapons to her people so they can reclaim Sykar. Volme takes John aside into a warehouse of Tanat Root and asks him to bring the rest of the crew of Moya back down to the planet. She wishes to take control of the ship and use it to transport their stored Tanat Root before the others arrive. Volme realizes that if Tanat Root has value to the others, then it must have value elsewhere. As John stares at the shipping containers full of Tanat Root, he observes that several have peacekeeper symbols on them. John calls Aaron and Rigel down to the planet to confront Volme, Zahn, and Dargo. Rigel demonstrates the secret of the Tannet Root by threatening the assembled crowd with a stream of explosive urine. Aaron informs Volme that the Tannet Root is processed by the peacekeepers to produce shocking oil, the fuel the peacekeepers use to power their weapons. Volme cannot take the Tannet Root and run without incurring the wrath of the peacekeepers. John and Aaron offer the knowledge to produce shocking oil and weapons to use against the peacekeepers that they can use to free their Sakarans. With Dargo and Hyben's persuasion, Volme is finally convinced that it's possible to free her people and reclaim the planet. Back on the ship, Aaron removes the worm from John while Dargo and Zahn talk in another room. Dargo worries that he may not be destined for genuine happiness. He reveals to Zahn that his two very different dreams in life. One was to be a magnificent warrior, fearless and immortalized in sonnets. The other is a simple life, family, children, and a garden. He had thought that the simple life on Sakaar had been found, but Zan assures Dargo that he can still build such a dream for himself. 
some interesting bits of trivia from this episode. Uh, it was uh, the first introduction of the Lux and Hyper Rage. Also, Jonathan Hardy, the voice of Rigel, refers to the urination scene, uh, explosive urination scene, as one of uh, his favorite during Farscape's entire run. And finally, uh, Crichton's reference to the Mel Gibson-Tina Turner cage match is a reference to the third Mad Max film, Beyond Thunderdome, uh, which, on a related note, was uh, one of Virginia Hay, who plays Don's earliest roles, was in the second Mad Max film. Yeah, apparently I, I looked that up because I thought that was kind of interesting. And I guess her character in The Road Warrior was called Warrior Woman. Not, a, not anarchist, huh? They missed it. They missed an right. opportunity there. Yeah, close, yeah. I guess that was the one of the main one of the main characters maybe i'll have to go back and look because i don't actually have that movie on my plex or anything but yeah i'm uh, thinking it might be one of the main characters that was with mel's character in the like the tanker run at the end maybe i'm not sure uh, but embarrassing admission i've never seen any of the mad max movies well i i still haven't seen the last one was it um fury road was it fury road yeah that one yeah I've owned it for like what? How long it's been? Like five years, six years? I've owned it. I never, <laughs> never watched it yet. Too much to do. Well, maybe you need some time travel. That's right, or flashbacks, right? Or a rest day. That's right. Yeah. So in in this episode, which we were guessing about last week, uh, we thought maybe time travel or flashbacks. Nope, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it makes sense because it would have been kind of weird to have two time travel episodes back to back. Exactly. So it's more of like a a riff on I guess Friday being the end of the week. And that, you know, the next day or the next two days are rest days for us, right? Usually, yeah. We like to think yeah. so. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's usually housework and yard work at this time of year, but yeah. And However, in, in these people's cases, rest day doesn't exist, apparently. You know, they tomorrow's a rest day, so they party at night, go to bed, when you're ready to relax the next day, get back up and go back in the fields, right? <laughs> yeah, which that's actually one of the two uh, Matrix things I kind of felt about this movie, uh, which was kind of funny to me, was the, the club scenes felt very um, Matrix 2 ravey to me. So that, was, that, was, that made me laugh, and, and I guess I was already in that frame of mind because of the bug, right? So you kind of, it's easy to draw parallels when you, you, you see the bug get dropped into the, the belly button scene. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought of when he was, you know, basically it looked almost, I don't want to say shot for shot like the Matrix because I think they came out around the same time or a little bit later. Not you know, so they would have had no idea. But yeah, when he's laying there and they, they put the worm on his belly, I'm like, oh, hey, that looks familiar. <laughs> yeah, they bugged him and and creepy. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, I guess the uh, uh, concept here is that the the root just makes them so susceptible that they never question the time jump. They just you know always get up the next day and are, are perfectly happy to go back to work because it brings them such contentment. Yeah, and maybe the root helps them not burn themselves out, I guess, because you think if you're working in a hot sun field for how many, 12 hours a day or whatever it is, you can't do that 24-7, right? You know, so maybe this root gives them some kind of additional effects of, you know, they're, they're susceptible to orders, you know, they just do what they're, they're told, but they can work like crazy, right? Yeah, because you really aren't given a, a, a time frame for how long the planet's been controlled by the others. They mention how the effect it's having on the the fields and that it's leaching all nutrients out of the soil. So it's not going to be suitable for anything else, but they don't say if that's been this generation or multiple generations, or you don't really get an idea. Um, I guess the, the leader was chosen by them, but that doesn't mean that she's the first leader. There's, there's a lot of possible time frames they could set this in as far as how long it's been happening. Yeah. And all we see are adults. We don't see any, any kids, not that there aren't any kids, but you know, and probably, probably they wanted to afford the extras, but still, you know, that wasn't really the part of the story. Right. Uh, I guess uh, last, ended the last episode with, I guess, John and Dargo 
or Mark Dargo complaining or talking about that, you know, he would have been distracted except it's been so long, apparently since he had relations with another person. Uh, he apparently got all he needed this time. <laughs> yeah, that's a true point. <laughs> except for poor John, right? Yeah, you know, John still got his problems, but Dargo's happy as a clam now. I mean, he's you know been down there for like a week and it's just been work all day and party all night, right? Yeah, well, I guess you know last episode may have led to part of the uh, the rage issue he was having, the uh, blood rage, and so that was the curious just sending down to the the planet where he can find companionship. Yeah, it could be. I, I kind of wondered. You know, they only really say what set off Dargo, and I guess since we learned in the trivia that this introduces hyper rage, that we'll see more of this probably. But yeah, I mean, the fact that John's hiding for three days, Dargo's been gone for three days, and he's still hiding, and the crew can't find him. Wasn't he wearing his comm badge? You're like, hey, Crichton, Dargo's gone. You can come out now. I just picture him climbing around, hiding. You know. Yeah, because he was kind of hiding like up in the. Moya's infrastructure or whatever, and the one scene where he's looking down when Dargo's running around, you know, kicking DRDs around. But yeah, it's kind of like, uh, hello, John. You know, there's no like internal scanning. Like, you know, <laughs> hey, there's Crichton. You know, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. don't. don't it, I, maybe more of us, you know, sleeping. We just don't know. Yeah, but it's funny. So that's that's what I love about Farscape. So you gotta keep the jokes, right? Yeah, but it, but it did give him a good chance to have the the contrast. We you know when you see um, Dargo go from that that opening rage to the really chill farmhand that he gets to play down on the planet, which I always enjoy getting to see actors play their, their characters. And I realize we're only a couple of episodes in, so we, it's not like he's long, long running at this point, but it's always cool to get to play something out of type, right? You know, take your serious character and play them loose or take a, take a loose character and play it tight or whatever. So this was kind of interesting to see your, your warrior just become kind of a chilled out, mellow, um, Cheech and Chong character. <laughs> right. Yeah, because I'm sure it's always fun to be able to play those two different, you know, kind of parts, right? And yeah, he's stomping around, screaming, yelling, you know, Crichton, you know, I'll kill you. And then it's like, you know, dude, how's it going? And he's like <laughs> hugging him and John's like, oh, okay, this is weird. Okay. But um, while we're in the bar, I thought it was really interesting that Valme chose to speak like this really slowly. Yeah, Which they went out of their way. I, to make... I, I would like to. I would like to do that since I mean I talk really fast. I apologize to everybody who's trying to rewind this thing. What the hell did he just say? But uh, so, but I should try to take uh, her uh, speech mechanism a little bit there. Yeah, although I I think they went out of their way to try to make her differentiated from the rest of the of the citizens. She, you know the, that white getup that she kind of had. I, I wasn't sure if she was supposed to be the same same species or if, if they were. You know, trying to set her up as a caretaker that was um, from a different place or what, but they definitely went out of their way to, to show her as different, and that included the speech patterns. So, yeah, it seemed kind of like maybe she was like an albino kind of species or a, a, a variant of that uh, Sakarian people, because she had like I think did she have red eyes too? Maybe I, you know I she, she may have. Although I I kind of originally thought that was supposed to be her what made her the gave her the immunity right was that she was some kind of offshoot or genetically different from the rest of the citizenship but then they later say that she had the worm so i guess that wasn't the case yeah and i guess was that worm i, I can't remember either it's been a little bit so we watched this is that worm native to the planet or, or do they just figure out that oh this worm on our planet also makes you immune if you weren't already i don't know they didn't explain it they didn't and we also don't know the long-term side effects right because Crichton gets the worm removed at the end so Possibly some of that, the eyes and coloration might be just a reaction to the worm long-term exposure. Yeah, could be if um, 
Valme was the only one that had it. That could be why she looks like that. Yeah, yeah interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll headcanon something anyway. Yeah, there we go. Uh, then I guess Rigel had a little bit more to do this episode than last time, at least parts of it. The the, the glutton motif or glutton, whatever you call it, pattern again. He's you know, eating everything in sight. Unfortunately, this time, rather than just getting an upset stomach, uh, he becomes uh, quite explosive, literally. <laughs> yeah, and, and other than those explosive moments, I think they they literally froze him out of most of the episodes so by putting him in cryostasis. So it's kind of interesting that they, once again, used him in, in the beginning and end, but for a lot of the, the episode, he was just kind of stuck out to the side. And same thing for Pilot, right? Pilot got a little bit more this episode, but it wasn't as on screen as much as just those scenes with Aaron uh, helping her at, in the background. Yeah, it was funny to watch when you know they have like the Rigel hovering in the cryostasis chamber or wherever field, and Aaron's just kind of like poking him, and she like breaks off part of his mustache because <laughs> it's frozen. Yeah, that that definitely made me question. Uh, I definitely wouldn't want Aaron being the one to give me medical care when I was frozen. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean she does a good job playing like the out of her comfort zone. Yeah, you because know, she's like, you know, I don't want to deal with this. I'm I'm a peacekeeper commando or commando in training we learned last time or almost commando you know she doesn't want anything to deal with science or tests or whatever and you know john convinces her to do it and then like you said with you know we learn that you know pilot two doesn't really know what he's doing but he's trying you know he's, he's trying to better himself he's trying to not just be a pilot right he's trying to you know, learn about science and other things i guess more he's teaching him or they have data banks or whatever and you know he tries to put both of them together get over the problem and come to the solution to help Rigel. Yeah, and regarding Pilot, that's another great example of the um, fact that we don't know a whole lot about him before the series starts, right? I mean, he's evidently a pilot, that, and given in the name, that gets plugged into Moya and that, that type of ship. But was he successful? Was Why was he here, and is he is he not a fully trained, I'm going to put air quotes around, pilot? Or is he, you know, is, was he in training? Was he Is he new? What's the... What's the setup for there? So there's a lot more information they could feed out there as well. Right. And like usually how these sci-fi shows kind of go is like, is, is you know, like each race is like this monolith, like, you know, like all Luxons are warriors, you know, all peacekeepers are peacekeepers or whatever, for lack of a better word, you know, all Klingons are warriors, right? You know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's Klingon scientists and Klingon, you know, lawyers like with, you know, Star Trek six again, but yeah, are all pilot species pilots for Leviathans? I don't know. Yeah. Or can other people pilot Moya? Well, I mean, and Aaron evidently can because anytime they need to do any evasive maneuvers, she takes manual control. Yeah, with that old, I, th- I think I actually had that mouse back in the 90s at work, like the, that ball, big ball track mouse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess another interesting thing that we learn is that Peacekeeper weapons are powered by an oil, like the shotgun oil, which I guess comes from this tenant root, uh, which I guess keeps what we talked about before of this uh, symbiotic organic feel to this part of the universe or galaxy wherever we are they're keeping that theme going yeah they definitely continue to show us that the this that's what differentiates us from earth right i mean all of our tech is hardware you know for lack of a better word it's it's something it's non-living and this is all uh related to some form of organics which is is a nice take it, it definitely shows that we're not in our comfort zone anymore but there's still like technology like you know obviously moya's got pieces of technology you know like she's not just just doesn't produce food for people. It must be some kind of food unit or something making the food for people. Not it's not part of her organic structure. But they've incorporated what she can do or what she is to having a crew and to having them have their needs and things on board to help them get you know help them function. Yeah, all the way back to the uh, microbes or the translation bugs that were implanted, right? So we get the from the very beginning the organic 
instead of a me mechanical translator, and it just continues to be shown as the show goes. Whereas the peacekeepers, maybe what we've seen so far, they look more like a, your, your traditional technological inorganic technology so far. Could be wrong. We'll find out later, but yeah, looks like that so far. Of course, you know, uh, going back to Rigel, his, his big climatic scene where he's not showing off the people, but you know, keeping them from charging the, the rest of the crew. But you know, you know, it's always good for potty humor. You know, that's always gets good for a couple laughs. Yeah, as you said, that gives him an, an explosive way of demonstrating the the danger. But yeah, it communicates and gets probably gets a laugh. It's not my favorite part of the episode, but it worked. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, having grown up with a, with a son and yeah, potty humors was always hilarious. It, it does kind of lead you back though to the end of the, this episode and, and where do the citizens go from here, right? Are they going to kick the habit and go back to normal? Is the planet going to be able to recover? You really don't get a whole lot of that information. They just kind of set it up and leave. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess they can't really exp you know explain everything and I'm, you know who knows if they go back to this planet, right? Like most of the time, they never come back to previous things again. So we'll, we'll never know. Did they throw off the peacekeepers? Did they make enough weapons? Did they fool them long enough to wean themselves off the route? Which I guess is not the worms for everybody. So did these people start eating something else? Did, did they leave some food behind or a food machine or like there's still 90% of the people on this planet, how many millions, hundred thousands, whatever, addicted to this route or susceptible versus the people that aren't so yeah it just seems like kind of like a i guess the plan's good in theory <laughs> we'll see how it goes in the long run yeah i guess as long as they take out all the announcement sy systems right and eventually give the people a an actual rest day then maybe it'll it'll help them get over it quicker because it, it's up to the commands i would like to see and maybe i'm just wishing here but i'd like to see even if it's a throwaway line later some mention of how the the peacekeepers are having a weapons shortage because of the workers not not being able to get the oil, but I, I'm probably wishful thinking there. Yeah, like, you know, we, we cut back to Crace's command carrier, and he's like, you know, fire, sir, we're out of checking oil. We can't, or we only have five shots left. We can't, you know, who knows? Maybe, you know, we, this is all new to both of us, so you never know. Never know. Although at least Volme did say that tomorrow would be a real rest day. So finally, they're getting some time off, right? Everybody needs a Saturday, man. That's right. You at least have one day off. Anything else about this episode? No, I, I really enjoyed these two. I think I think we um like you like we said in the past. I think we're finally starting to get into the the pattern of the the characters are comfortable with each other. We're getting the the beats and the humor, and it, it's settling in. So it, it, I'm still enjoying the ride. It's definitely definitely an enjoyable show. Yeah, I mean this is like I said last time. This this is the pattern of the Farscape. I remember you know the the jokes, the action, the comedy, you know the character interactions. We had a lot of you know funny. Uh, quotes last time in the last episode this time we have kind of like more physical comedy you know we have you know dargo hugging Crichton when zan and Crichton go back to dargo's quarters and they're laying on like that futon bed on the floor and they will have both have to share the same bed and you know zan just lays down and Crichton's like i guess i'll sleep over here no lay down lay on the bed and then he's like trying not to like get close to her and then she like puts his hand on him and he's like Ooh, when she falls asleep and moves her the way then they, they, he like wakes up later in the morning and he's like got his arm around her. <laughs> yeah, they definitely didn't didn't shy away from any of the physical humor in this episode. But yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, this is the good stuff about Farscape. So yeah, they've already hit their groove only at, like episode six, I guess. So they got the general plot, the general framework down early, and I guess the subsequent writers built off of that. All right, if that's it, then coming up next time we have season one. Episode 7, PK Tech Girl, and Season 1, Episode 8, That Old Black Magic.
don't know if I want to make any predictions about these. They, they sound, I have no idea what they sound like. PK Tech Girl sounds like it could be like some kind of anime series, you know, but I'm sure that's not what it is. Yeah. And Black Magic, of course, throws you, throws you into some kind of voodoo type mindset. So we'll see if they actually dredge that up or which direction they go. Yeah. Maybe it's a Zan episode where she has some more of her mystical priestly powers come up or something. I don't know. We will find out. And once again, that's the Wikipedia order. Because uh, I think PK Tech Girl is like episode two or something in the Amazon order. So that came, that's a real shift if you're trying to, you know, from what we've seen so far, I can't imagine you, you would have missed all kinds of character development and plot and you know, past history of so far for these episodes if you jumped you know, that far back. And I'm not sure where episode eight is. It might be further up the chain, but at some point I'm guessing we'll get back to a normal order, but we'll find out. That's the fun of doing this. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. And, you know, it gives you some, some way to check, right? You, you got you to gotta think about what you're doing. That's right. You got to keep your on your toes. It's not just click next, watch the next show, and binge episodes for, you know, 12 hours a day. We can dream. That's right. It'd be a really long podcast if we did 12 <laughs> episodes at <of> once. <laughs> and, and if you've made it this far, we promise we're not doing 12 episodes at once. Maybe if some bootleg. No, just kidding. No, we're never going to do that. <laughs> All right, so that's your homework for next time. Uh, we'll see you next time. Goodbye.